Greetings, dear listeners. This is Kim C., and you're listening to The Year of Underrated Stephen King. This is a literary book podcast where this university fiction teacher attempts to make her way through the underrated Stephen King works and render them with a bit of academic analysis, attempt, perhaps not succeed, but we attempt. Hello, sweet people. Welcome, welcome. It is a very thundery, stormy morning where I'm reporting from. What Couldn't pick a better environment to discuss the second installment of The Green Mile. I am so thrilled to be with you. Welcome to part two of six, where we're going to be examining the second story today, the second story in The Green Mile. If you haven't already heard my part one coverage, please jump back to last week's episode where I discuss how the original novel of The Green Mile was released via six installments, much like the chapbooks of olden times, ye olden days, a la Charles Dickens and other popular serial authors who have uh, participated in that kind of release schedule. It's a pretty common thing. Um, A lot have done it in the past to drum up excitement and curiosity and of course reader devotion. And we still super duper have that today with all of the TV series we follow and binge on waiting for that next season to drop. But this is such a fun, unique endeavor for King to participate in because what's cool about this particular title is that he wrote it. He composed the story in installments, and I really, really like that. So this entire thing was not written in a cohesive way, not as a collective novel or story, and then sliced up accordingly. It is written in chunks, and it shows. And it's the reason why I've decided to explore this via the individual parts because I think we're forced to really lean into the text. With something like this, we really have to examine the style King is plugging in with because there are a lot of wonderful hooks and moments when his craft expertise, oh, you guys, it's neon bright. It is just blindingly bright. It is so, so good, folks. But Overall, this is a novel, when it's all collaborated, when it's all said and done, it's highly celebrated. This is rated very highly. So uh, in terms of overall strength and overall story, this thing has five stars across the board. But we are covering it here on our show because I really don't hear a lot of analysis about it in the way that Kim C likes to analyze King. So I really wanted to try to give it the college treatment right about now and do a deep dive into what each part is bringing forth, how each might be a little unique, how the characters are operating, how the plot is growing and expanding. We're going to look at it all. We are going to look at it all, dear folks. And today we've got part two, The Mouse on the Mile in our spotlight. So like the first book, The Two Dead Girls, the first installment, this one is approximately the same amount of pages. I think we have 92 pages in this paperback release. Um, 
and then I, I think last week it was 89 89 90 91 92 they're all very very uh, let's grab my skinny skinny little book oh it's so tiny and little I can't get over it I'm just such a hardback brat that when I <laughs> when I read a paperback I I'm just fascinated by by the teeny tininess yes the mouse on the mile is 92 paperback pages last week was 89 and I decided for my green mile coverage I was not going to be tempted to read on so these paperback releases are so helpful for me because they reveal each chunk in the tiny spoonful I'm craving and I'm really cool with that it's providing such a fun reader experience dear friends so if you uh, want to do a similar journey to what I'm doing right now head over to eBay if you don't have these editions yet uh, you can find some pretty good prices out there but if you're a king collector I'm talking to of course you have these editions of course you do but let's do a quick recap from last week before we get going here last week we examined the two dead girls and I forewarned everyone that although I have never read The Green Mile before I have seen the 1999 film so I do know what happens I do know the truth about certain characters Ergo, I, I'm aware I'm going into it with a little bit of an advantage. I really wish I didn't know the things I know, but I cannot change the past. Uh, I, I'm finding this advantage that I have, though, very hard to compartmentalize because the first part of this book, The Two Dead Girls, is definitely positioning the pieces in such a way I have a hard time playing dumb. Like, I am having a hard time um with the things i know for example the true nature of john coffee is very powerful dear ones and we're really gonna talk about that much more in depth as we move along but i do know the outcome of this story but i've never read the novel so that's where we're at and i'm gonna do my best to suspend my emotions about certain things that's a tall order when you have a really really heartfelt story such as this one really powerful king characters oh man guys wow i wow I, that's all i'm gonna say i'm so excited to unpack them with you but I'm going to do my best and attempt to be as objective as possible, but I can make no promises. None whatsoever. So a quick recap from last week, the, the summary of the two dead girls. As the reader, we are in the year 1932 in a small prison, either called Cold Mountain or it's in a place called Cold Mountain. I am unsure. That is still vague at this point. It feels like a southern place. My guess from last week is North Carolina. I don't know. Our narrator is death row supervisor Paul Edgecombe, who is telling the reader about some of the last inmates he saw executed via electric chair and how one of them, or perhaps all of them, or rather, something happened because of these executions that altered the trajectory of his life. And we have that from the text in the final pages of The Two Dead Girls. There's a wonderful cliffhanger where Paul is kind of reporting at the end of his career as an e-block supervisor. Super duper good. 
So let's provide an outline for today's episode before we get started. Like last week, we're going to talk about what happened in this installment with a brief summary. We'll talk about some of the characters we met, some new ones that have arrived or exited, and then I'm going to share a chunk of the text I found really intriguing, beautifully written, engaging, and then I'll break down and talk about what's really enjoyable in this particular chunk of the story, what I really like liked, admired, or what didn't sit right with me, and where I have questions. So that will be our episode. So once more, I am going to steer around direct spoilers, but I will be revealing a few just haphazardly. Sometimes I do that on accident, and I'm really sorry in advance if I do do that. So if you're in the middle of your reread and you haven't got to book two yet, please pause now just in case I totally goof and reveal something you're not yet ready for. If it's been a while since you've read The Green Mile and you really want to catch up and you don't want to know what happens to certain characters, totally understandable. I'm going to be as vague as I can, but please be forewarned, caveat emptor, buyer beware as you press forward with me. Alright guys, summary for The Mouse on the Mile. So in this section, we learn a lot more about our narrator, Paul Edgecombe. We learn that he is currently in a retirement home. He is actually physically writing his account of the story. So it's very clear who our narrator is in this second installment. And it also might indicate why our timeline is non-linear and a little jumbled. Definitely a lot more on that in the next section. But we have in this chunk an actual electric chair execution of inmate Arlen Bitterbuck, aka The Chief, who I found out is from the Washita Cherokee tribe, uh, which I don't know if that's real. I didn't look it up, but the Cherokee are real, so that's all we need to know. And King alludes to it being in the Montana area, or at least uh, Bitterbuck spent a lot of happy times there. Uh, I'm going to explore that in the scene I'm going to read in the next section. But uh, Arlen Bitterbuck murdered a fellow tribesman while intoxicated. It was pretty brutal, hence uh, that's what led him to arriving at um, the Green Mile. We also have the arrival of the actual uh, Cajun Frenchman, Edouard de la Croix, de la Croix or Ed- Edward de la Croix, whichever is easiest for you. He gets a pretty brutal introduction to the novel as Percy is savagely beating him with his prison baton, or his police baton, pardon, his police baton um, really uh, shining a light on Percy's true character, yeah. Um, But like the title suggests, this installment is mostly about a precious, brave, curious, hungry, precocious little mouse of many aliases. Uh, Some call him Steamboat Willie, uh, but we know him as Mr. Jingles. And this little guy, I love him so much, uh, he walks down the green mile, bold as brass, and he's looking in each one of the cells and it's very intriguing to our e-block squad he isn't afraid or skittish and really ultimately he just seems to be a mouse on a mission and it's it's 
very cool for the reader. Uh, the Black Squad are pretty kind to him, aside from Percy Wetmore, of course. More on that mess of a man in the next section. But Harry Terwilliger, Dean Stanton, Brutal Howell, and Paul, they all feed him pieces of their lunches and snacks and this little guy, this mouse, eats and looks at them and remains snacking away unafraid until he scampers off and returns later. They don't know where he comes from, uh, where he came from, but he's, he's there and he's cute and he eventually finds his way to Edouard Delacroix's cell and the two become friends. Uh, Edouard is so smitten for the mouse, he tells everyone that the mouse told him that his name is Mr. Jingles. And there is a really precious part of this installment narrative where there's like a concerted effort amongst the E-Block squad to get Mr. Jingles a cigar box to sleep in. And it's so touching, you guys. Oh my God. There's just, uh, I, there's it's something so small and sweet in such a grim place. We're on death row and it's just kind of amazing when you have human kindness in such a bleak uh, setting, it just sort of ramps it up. It turns up the saturation and the brightness really high, and it's a very special part of the story. Uh, but we end this episode with poor Paul's uh, U UTI. He's got a really bad urinary tract infection. It could even be a bladder infection, although I'm not a doctor, but this is real bad, folks, and it's flaring up quite a bit. And then in the final pages of the novel, we have the very explosive, frightening arrival of an inmate named Wild Bill Wharton. So Wild Bill plays possum in a way, as they say. Uh, when the squad arrived, I think it's at the hospital or some holding place because it was foretold that Bill Wharton during his criminal trial had really strong bouts of seizures. So I believe he was hospitalized and the squad arrives either at the hospital or some holding area to pick him up. And this guy acts like he's got a full-on Thorazine drip. He's super uh, sedated, that he's just really, he's, he's not responsive. He's not in reality. He's barely able to move, let alone speak. But at the very last moment, um, as the door to the cell is being opened by Dean Stanton, he springs to life, causes all sorts of chaos, and that's how he's introduced to the story. But in this installment, we only have a few mentions of John Coffey. So no direct scenes uh, unfold, um, but I think we're going to have a lot more in the next installment, part three, entitled Coffee's Hands. So I'm assuming we're going to have a lot more of him in focus. But that's what I have for the summary. Oh man, listeners, I feel... After part two, we're mixing ingredients now. I've been watching a lot of baking shows in my downtime. It's uh, definitely what I have playing in the background when I'm grading papers. And I feel like with this chunk, uh, I'm getting the lay of the land. I'm getting to know the squad a bit more and we are in the bakery, dear ones. We are mixing away and it's feeling good. This narrative is feeling very special at present. My heart is getting ready for what's to come. I I know um, 
Well, based on the the heavy heap of foreshadowing we have, I, I know it's gonna be bad, but I think there's gonna be a lot of good in there at the same time. But according to my paperback release um, that was published in 1996, let's uh, try to win an autographed Stephen King library. Uh, there's a super fun contest in the very back of my paperback copy. And if we answer the following question and mail our response to a certain Medford, New York address, uh, we could win. So here is the question. It is said in the book that the guards have no real power over the prisoners on the Green Mile. What does this mean? Write your answer on a separate piece of paper in 50 words or less. What? 50 words or less? No way. Um, I love this. So I think what we're going to do at the end of the Green Mile, we're going to take all of these um, sweepstakes questions and we're, we're going to answer them together. I think that would be really fun. But did anybody out there write back in the day? Did anyone write in and uh, did you get anything? Did they send you a you're a winner or a you're not a winner? Did you get anything? Did anyone get a response? I am dying to know. Please tell me at underratedsk at gmail if you did because I love this. All right, dearest friends, let's head over to the next section where I'm going to talk about new characters as well as areas of this installment that I admired, zones where I'm curious, as well as questions, questions, questions. So let's follow Mr. Jingles and I'll meet you there. Alright friends, the cell doors have clanged shut and we're here as the green miles getting quiet. So let's talk about some of the characters we have in this part two installment called The Mouse on the Mile. So our first character I want to talk about is a character named Toot Toot. So I don't have a real name for him, but he is a cart pusher at the prison and he's kind of obnoxious. Uh, Toot Toot is a pretty uh, gregarious and eccentric guy and in this installment he assists the block squad with rehearsing for the execution of Arlen Bitterbuck. And he's kind of comedic relief. He's a little Jar Jar Binksy in his <laughs> slight irritation, but I I like that he's featured in the scene, and I also really like how King gives us a rehearsal scene of the execution rather than the actual play by play. And my guess is that he's holding back a little bit because most likely in this story, as it continues, we're going to get a lot more executions. So I, I like that it was a rehearsal where we got some really wonderful details of how the squad carries out their assigned duties. There's a little bit of like military precision and follow through with that. So I really enjoyed that 
aspect of the scene, but Toot Toot is definitely comic relief, and according to the text, he's been around, I don't know if it's this prison, but prison in general, he's been around for a very long time. And Toot Toot, uh, as a cart pusher, reminded me a lot of Brooks. Do you guys remember Brooks from Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption? I hope so. I hope you remember Brooks and his little bird Jake. Saloon, so good. Um, whereas Toot Toot is kind of wild and um, a little bit zany brainy, Brooks from, was it 1982? I believe it's 1982, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. Uh, Brooks was also a cart pusher inside of Shawshank. He was quiet and regal and also very old. And uh, Toot Toot is, though they have the same sort of prison assignment or occupation, he's definitely a cheeky, eccentric weirdo. But it works. It works in the scene, and he's harmless. And um, yeah, so I kind of appreciated getting to know Toot Toot in this installment. The second character is Warden Hal Moores. So this guy is not a new character, but I don't believe I mentioned him in last week's episode. He had a very small scene with Paul in The Two Dead Girls where the reader is informed how his wife has been in poor health for quite some time. She's been in the hospital for a while and they're not sure what's wrong with her. And from what we gather as the reader, Paul and the warden have a decent professional relationship and maybe even a friendship. But in the last pages of Mouse on the Mile, before Wild Bill arrives, Paul pops into the warden's office really quick to chat with him. It's early in the morning and he catches the warden in like a full-on emotional breakdown. Uh, because uh, the warden tells Paul they discovered a huge brain tumor in his wife's head and she will not most likely be alive to see Christmas. And I believe, based on the text, we are around the September-October of 1932 timeline. But Warden Halmores is sobbing and clinging to Paul and having a full-on breakdown and lots of tears and emotion. He's like, uh, he's, his hair's a mess. He's a mess. So, uh, perhaps this could be, this is just an, uh, a hypothesis of mine because I am a constant reader. I'm wondering if this terrible grief is a foreshadowing of things to come in terms of the king handling of doom, doom for all the darlings or doom for all characters affiliated with this prison perhaps. I am not sure, I'm just putting it out there, but I'm definitely going to be paying attention to the warden Hal Moores as the story moves forward. So we'll see what happens with that. And now, dear friends, I can't wait any longer. I'm so excited to share this beautifully written scene with all of you. This was one of my favorites in the installment. I had three favorites that got little post-it bookmarkers as I was reading, but this one chunk won the honor of being read on the podcast today. So this begins on page 21 in the 1996 Signet paperback, and it goes to page 23. 
Steamboat Willie showed up around 7 o'clock. I was there to see his reappearance. So was Dean. Harry to Williger, too. Harry was on the desk. I was technically on days, but had stuck around to spend an extra hour with the chief, whose time was getting close by then. Bitterbuck was stoical on the outside, in the tradition of his tribe, but I could see his fear of the end growing inside him like a poison flower. So we talked. You could talk to them in the daytime, but it wasn't so good, with the shouts and conversation, not to mention the occasional fistfight coming from the exercise yard, the chonk, chonk, chonk of the stamping machines in the plate shop, the occasional yell of a guard for someone to put down that pick or grab up that hoe or just get your ass over here, Harvey. After four, it got a little better, and after six, it got better still. Six to eight was the optimum time. After that, you could see the long thoughts starting to steal over their minds again. In their eyes, you could see it, like afternoon shadows, and it was best to stop. They still heard what you were saying, but it no longer made sense to them. Past eight, they were getting ready for the watches of the night and imagining how the cap would feel when it clamped to the tops of their heads and how the air would smell inside the black bag which had been rolled down over their sweaty faces. But I got the chief at a good time. He told me about his first wife and how they had built a lodge together up in Montana. Those had been the happiest days of his life, he said. The water was so pure and so cold that it felt like your mouth was cut every time you drank. Hey, Mr. Edgecombe, he said. You think if, if a man sincerely repent of what he done wrong, he might get to go back to the time that was happiest for him and live there forever? Could that be what heaven is like? I've just about believed that very thing, I said, which was a lie I didn't regret in the last. I had learned of matters eternal at my mother's pretty knee, and what I believed is what the good book says about murderers, that there is no eternal life in them. I think they go straight to hell, where they burn in torment until God finally gives Gabriel the nod to blow the judgment trump. When he does, they'll wink out, and probably glad to go they will be. But I never gave a hint of such beliefs to Bitterbuck or to any of them. I think in their hearts they knew it. Where is your brother? His, bro his blood crieth to me from the ground, God said to Cain, and I doubt if the words were much of a surprise to that particular problem child. I bet he heard Abel's blood whining out of the earth at him with each step he took. The chief was smiling when I left, perhaps thinking about his lodge in Montana and his wife lying bare-breasted in the light of the fire. He would be walking in a warmer fire soon, I had no doubt. Oh, lovely. So lovely and gorgeous and layered, and I really, really liked that. You guys, there's such beautiful writing in this. <laughs> okay, so let's progress to two aspects of this chunk that I really admired. Number one, narrative structure. So I know last week we were really examining how much I enjoyed the narrative voice of our narrator Paul Edgecombe and how the first person POV is really working well here. Um, I want to call it, I, I know I can't, but I want to call it first person omniscient, but it's not. I don't know if that's a thing. I'm sure it is somewhere with some creative writers, but it's, it's not full omniscience because Paul doesn't know the thoughts and feelings of the other characters, but his awareness and retrospection or introspection 
it seems so strong. <laughs> it could really lead one to maybe think that we've got something like omniscience. But what we learn in part two is that Paul is old, guys, like real old. We don't know the exact age, but he has grown-up grandchildren, um, and he is reporting to the reader from an elderly community called Georgia Pines, so I'm assuming that's in the Atlanta area, <laughs> but um, he is in a spot, I mean, I don't know if it's Atlanta, it could be a couple, couple places, but I'm assuming it's in Georgia. He's in a spot where he feels it's really important to write this story down something is compelling him and he's doing it no matter what and he's kind of fumbling along as he goes as we read in the first few pages of this installment and oh my gosh dear friends the non-linear narrative choices are working so well so well guys and once more this novel is composed in chunks so it's working so well, perhaps because King is making it work, probably that, but the fact that Paul is reporting to us from a very old age, and he seems to be on a very fervent mission of some sorts to tell this tale and express it as best he can, it's just coming across. That aspect of Paul's character is really, really coming to life. But I love, love, love that last week with the two dead girls, we are starting with the ending. And if you guys remember from the final scene, the end of the two dead girls informs the reader that the death of these characters we will come to know has changed not only Paul forever, but others as well. We find that out in the first installment. We learn this at the very beginning, and that is cool, my friends. That is the master at work playing with time and space and deep meaning. And I know that constant readers out there know King's writing style is very sort of haphazard and discovery-like. He uncovers a story as he goes, so I don't know if there's much planning in this, but the fact that he decided to begin with the ending is very cool. So I'm already impressed by the fact that via Paul's narration, um, and with this fervent desire to tell the story to us his way, he's making these choices, whether it's old age or just coincidence, it's Paul who's deciding how he wants it to be revealed. And that just creates such a depth of character. We are getting such a deep character with this narrative voice and this non-linear narrative structure. and. The two of those are just wrapped up in this Paul Edgecombe persona. I'm loving it, dear listeners. I'm loving it. And I'm looking forward to observing the puzzle pieces as they come to us. So a huge strength in this draft is narrative structure. Oh my gosh, guys, I'm salivating. All right, my second point is one that I'm titling Percy Wetmore, comma, an observation. So... <laughs> Okay, guys, um, so what I noticed about the character of Percy Wetmore is King has definitely put him in place to be our villain. He did this right away. In the first installment of The Two Dead Girls, 
we learn that Percy is incredibly unlikable um, and he is the worst kind of bad guy in what I'd like to call uh, those on the tree of the privileged and powerful. So we have this with a lot of pink king bad guys uh, that aren't of the paranormal type. So these are the non-paranormal king villains. In Rose Matter, if you guys have read that 1995 novel, um, the villain, so gross, the evil Norman Daniels, he's a cop with uh, lots of buddies in high places, super gross abuse of power, and in Under the Dome, uh, Big Jim Rennie, he's a town selectman with lots of money and influence and friends in high and low places, friends everywhere. And all three of these guys, Percy, Jim, uh, Norman, they, they have those friends in high places, and that's what often keeps them in the story, bringing all the torment and agony for so long. And I think it hits home so hard because that's what we have in real life, right? I mean, that's what we see in everyday life, especially uh, on our news outlets, in our newspapers. You see corruption all the time and it's in the spotlight and yet they're still there. Um, so yeah, King's definitely channeling uh, the, the real life with that. They are let off the leash by those in power. And with Percy, he is buddy-buddy. Uh, it's either... I know that they went over it in The Two Dead Girls, and I should have taken better notes. I'm, <laughs> I'm unaware if it's a familial relationship with someone in the Trapingas County uh, governing board, or if it's even higher than that and it's state politics. So I think it actually might be the governor, which would make sense uh, for my Americans out there as state governors are allowed to yay, nay, be Caesar thumbs up, thumbs down on any death sentence of convicted criminals, those on death, death row. Ultimately, the phone in the execution room is there if the governor wants to call and stop it. So, at least I think I'm right. Uh, if I'm not, <laughs> my apologies to my fellow U.S. citizens, and I promise I'll review my government textbook. But uh, I'm not a hundred percent, but I'm about ninety percent sure on that. But furthermore. In addition to his political ties or his friends in high places, Percy as a man is short, pretty significantly short. Uh, I believe 5'1 or 5'2. So I think there's definitely a Napoleon complex there. Um, and this is perhaps what caused him to seek a career where he can feel big, bad, and tough, even though he's not too high off the ground. He gets to have a job with weapons and he gets to be mean and in your face and so he's kind of channeling that Napoleon complex and he gets to make other people feel small and all of those all of these things are great schematics for a blossoming king villain but here's where it goes off the rails for me folks in The Mouse on the Mile is where I kind of just stopped for a second in my reading and I shook my head and ruminated on the despicable nature of Percy Wetmore. So as I mentioned in the last section, Edouard de la Croix um, enters the Eid block with Percy beating him. So Percy is just, oh gosh, it's he's just 
slamming his police baton into Edouard um, because he felt Edouard tried to touch his no-no spot when he was haphazardly falling to the ground. Um, Edward tripped and he kind of grabbed for anything to keep him from falling and Percy felt he got a little too close to his boy part and you know it's it's just a load of crap and potentially Percy made the whole thing up um, and it seems that that's not sort of a that's not a personal um, assumption it seems that in the text most of the e-block guys uh, assume that Percy wanted to hurt Edouard because he's much smaller than Percy. Edward is described as a very petite guy and although his t crime was very terrible, murder and arson, uh, in this scene, as the reader, I couldn't help but have a little bit of sympathy for him as he's trying to block the blows and huddle and scurry away from Percy hitting him and it's super awful and it gets worse. So uh, shortly after this very violent introduction of Percy and Edouard, we get a scene where all of a sudden Percy is being really kind to Edouard. He's really nice to him. He's being magnanimous and should suggest to Edouard that a cigar box would be perfect for little Mr. Jingles to sleep in. And for a second, in the reading, the reader and Paul's guard is kind of lowered because it seems like someone talked to Percy and told him, like, straighten up or fly right, or he had this huge epiphany or change of heart. But in the story, in this installment, Paul reveals that years later, when dining with someone, I don't think it's Hal Moore's, but it's someone in their industry, that the only reason why Percy changed his behavior to that of kindness toward Edouard was because he was told by his friend in power that he would be placed on the execution squad for Edouard if he was, you know, not causing any trouble or, um, crossing his T's and dotting his I's. If he was being a model employee, he would be the one that gets to execute Edouard. He would be in the room and essentially the very one to end his life. And this, folks, is where we get a super strong, crystal clear glimpse of a psychopath, sociopath sort of coming to fruition. We get a person who wants to coax the victim until they're whole and potentially trusting. It's gonna heal up this, you know, wounded animal so it can hear its own neck crack. Uh, he wants to do all this so he can be the one to murder him later. And it's so predatory. He's like waiting in the wings. He's this patient snake biding his time, just waiting to snap his jaws down. And it's despicable. But in addition to being despicable, it's cunning, it's calculating, it's manipulative, and it's complex, which is the golden word. That's what we want in a character. And Percy is, although I hate to use this word, he is kind of fascinating because Paul and the other E-Block guys, they don't like him. He's a tattletale, he's a cruel person, and I think instinctively they, they don't like him, they know something isn't right about him, and that he isn't good. 
um, the e-block squad without really understanding why they sense this in him and i know that might be a bit of a stretch because we don't have too much contextual evidence about that but we actually do um so i'm going to go on a really quick tiny tangent um and discuss a spot of nonfiction with all of you malcolm gladwell is a canadian journalist who is really well known but he has a bunch of awesome sociological books under his belt and one of my favorites is called blink and all it's about is how our human and caveman DNA kind of has us hardwired to detect friend or foe when encountering other humans in the world in the, quote, blink of an eye. Uh, in a few seconds, in a few microseconds, a human's gut instincts provide so much data on the character of a person, but we often don't listen to it out of like social, so societal politeness, etc. Like we kind of ignore that firing instinct, and you hear it all the time when people say it doesn't feel right or this person didn't seem right, and that is that gut instinct that has been with humanity for thousands of years. And this nonfiction book is kind of telling humans how to harness it, trust it. Anyway, fascinating book, but I think it's legitimate in this scenario with Paul, the e-block squad, and Percy. No one likes this guy, folks. They don't trust him. They know deep down in their gut instincts that he is bad. And Paul says deep down when he looks at Percy, he knows he's a coward. He knows inside he's a sniveling little weasel who's super obsessed with personal grooming. But outwardly, uh, Percy uses whatever chess moves he has and his high connections to wreak havoc on those who are smaller than him. Paul knows this. The reader knows this. But in this installment, guys, what was super gross, what's so uncomfortable is how he wants to trick Edouard or trick everybody else and be warm and kind for the sole reason of killing him at a later date. And it's just yuck. It, it's like watching someone pet the bunny for a really long time before you snap its neck and it's deeply unsettling and it really extends an arm to a creepy psychological place where this guy is just bad really 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 bad guys Percy Wetmore, I'm putting it out there. I think he's a disgusting sadist and I'm very nervous for what's ahead. <laughs> I'm very nervous, guys. Really, really apprehensive. And so with these current observations that I'm putting forth thus far, we may potentially at the end of this novel have a new addition to the most hated king villain squad in Kim C's bank of bad guys. So um, he might make the cut. He might round out my top three. We shall see. So to recap, the characters we explored in this installment are Toot Toot, the cart pusher, as well as Warden Hal Moores. And the things that I'm really enjoying thus far are the narrative structure or Paul's narration and his character. I, I All of it, I'm loving Paul. And then I've got my eyes wide open for the character slash villain of Percy Wetmore. 
So to conclude, at the end of this installment, The Mouse on the Mile, the reader finds out that in 1933, the prison was closed, which, dear friends, is huge. Like, wow. Huge question mark there. I was prepared for Paul and the other E-Block squad to quit, but wow, not for the entire prison to close. So we also learn in this installment that it, it's small. It only has about 150 people. Uh, I think that's collectively inmates and uh, guard staff. So a small place. So it could have been like a, a real life, um, what am I thinking? Alcatraz kind of environment where it just got really overly expensive to maintain. Maybe it's something like that, but this is a King novel. Of course not. Uh, something happened. Something happened. Something happened. Uh, for those of you constant readers who have read Revival, something happened. Something happened. That's a great recurring line in that tremendous 2014 novel. If you haven't read it, do it, do it, do it. Um, but something went down, folks, and I'm excited to learn what it is because, yeah, that I've got some questions about that. But thus far, dear listeners, I'm really, uh, I'm, I'm getting, a, a spell is being cast on me in the Green Mile. It is gorgeous. It is engrossing, enthralling. I'm really enjoying it thus far. And so next week, we will have coverage on part three of the Green Mile, halfway through, called Coffee's Hands. So that's our next part coming up, part three, Coffee's Hands. If you're enjoying the series thus far, dear friends, please write in to the year of underrated Stephen King at our email address, underratedsk at gmail.com. I'd love to know your thoughts on if you're having fun, uh, your thoughts on the Green Mile in general, or any other novels that we've covered on the show thus far. You can also reach me at underratedskpod on Twitter and Instagram. No TikTok yet, yet. Maybe I might cave in the new year. Who knows? But uh, please reach out and say hi. And if you've been enjoying the coverage, it would mean so much if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and give the show a five star. That would be amazing. Would super duper appreciate that. But I'd love to hear from all of you guys. I hope you're enjoying the coverage thus far. I know I am. I am... I'm trying not to freak out over how lovely it is, but it's kind of hard to, to do that. We've got a very rich narrative on our hands, folks. Lots to talk about, lots of beauty to admire, and I'm loving it. So I will see you all next week for part three, Coffee's Hands. Take care, be safe, and I'll see you then. <laughs>